Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. There's a good chance if you've been eyeing the news or social media these last few months, you've seen a bit about the crisis happening in Sri Lanka right now. Bank from Sri Lanka asked citizens abroad to send home cash. 13 Lankan banks placed on rating watch negative. Sri Lanka defaults on $51 billion external debt. There is trouble in the island paradise. Many students and teachers can no longer go to school because of the fuel situation. And nearly a million children are now classified as at risk and in need of is much more than an economic crisis. It is a humanitarian crisis. The question is, how did it happen? How did Colombo lose all its money? total economic collapse that's led to a shortage of the most basic items like food, gas and medical supplies. A spectacular display of uprisings from protests across the many different political and ethnic groups is ongoing and continually evolving even as you're hearing this. You might recall what's being dubbed a revolution, where people have stormed the former president's home, ousting him and ushering in a new government. But the demands of the ongoing protests remain unclear and conflicting in agenda, and the question of what's next lingers for many people on the ground. As someone who's part of the Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora, watching uprisings unfold in a familial homeland isn't new to me, but it's definitely one of the first times I've felt a global lens turn to the country, even if that reporting can feel uneven, confusing, or nestled in its own agendas. As someone of this diaspora, I also feel aware of how entangled the history of the island is and the many, sometimes unreported, histories that led to the critical point that the country is in. 
The story that you'll hear today interweaves the voices of Sri Lankan people on the ground and in the diaspora, who through their work will offer ways in which we can make sense of what's happening right now. Sri Lanka has a history that perhaps could never be fully unraveled, but maybe by hearing a chorus of voices we can braid together these complex stories. We begin in the present moment with journalist and researcher based out of Sri Lanka, Sharan Ilan Paruma. Here he is speaking to the social climate right now on the ground and the aftermath of the former regime leaving the country. The social climate is one of perhaps um, nervous anticipation and also a kind of a reconfiguring of a lot of the social contracts that were involved in the protest movement. Um, so the protest movement itself was uh, very diverse, um, a little bit urban centric. So it comprised of um, a lot of um, middle and upper middle classes who you know, traditionally weren't involved in, in sort of mass movements and protests who uh, took to the streets and then alongside them you know you had sort of unlikely uh, comrades coming from from uh, student unions from uh, a couple of public sector unions from um, you know the the informal sector which is quite large in in sri lanka um yeah and small business owners um and also people who who weren't directly involved in the protest but might have looked at it you know from afar from from their tv screen and um, supported in some way. Um, so, of course, that there were a lot of um, contradictions, I think, in, in the, the long-term goals and aspirations of these different class groups. But the one thing they could agree on was that the president should resign. So now that that immediate goal has been achieved, um, that's why I say there's kind of um, a renegotiation now to see, okay, like, who's actually going to come out on top of this, you know, after he's resigned, like, who's whose agenda and whose program is is going to be um, carried forward. That feeling of ambivalence and query continues. For communities in the North and East, uprisings to call a government into account is rooted in the lineage of Tamil communities, an ethnic group that has experienced a cultural genocide of peoples, many of whom are still calling for account and justice. I still try to find semblances of my family's histories who were also forced out of this region. Speaking through the trauma of genocide isn't exactly a passing conversation, but the shadow of it looms even to today. I spoke to Tamil activist Ranika Inkokumar on what the feels are on the ground in places that have long felt the failings of neglect of the government. I think people need to pay attention that Tamils on the island have been facing oppression since 1948. So since, you know, the independence of Sri Lanka, but what we as Tamils call it is the beginning of the oppression of Tamils. So that day is actually February 4th, which is Tamil Oppression Day. Um, And people need to realize that we've faced extreme discrimination from whoever was in power in Sri Lanka. Um, And this was through um, the effects of colonial rule um, and the effects of Buddhist ideology that's been seeped into the constitution. Um, so the social climate, you know, in the north, it's, it's very different to the south. Um, and the reason is um, there are many mothers in the north who are saying, you know, the protests do not have an ideology. 
um, you know, the protest started with go home, Gotha. Okay, so Gotha buyers left. Now who's in power? It's Ronald. Um, so, you know, all the Tamils know that whoever's in power, they continue the so-called legacy of oppressing Tamils. Um, so those in the north are ex- and east are extremely, um, you know, they're extremely just upset that their voice is not being heard because their change is political transformation while the South is wanting economic change. What's happening now is they're facing the ruling um, of the Sri Lankan um, government that does not represent them. And that's the same with the working class and the Muslims as well. What is happening is, um, so this affects Tamils, Muslims and working class farmers, communities, everyone. Um, An example would be the Single Only Act, which was enacted in 1956. That was to help the Sinhalese to continue always being on the top. There's a real tension between the many experiences and groups that reside in the country. Political transformation that is meaningful and equitable can feel out of reach, and being part of the diaspora comes with a strange disconnect and unknowing of where to put your interest and energy. Sri Lanka is a really complicated country. Narashini Rajan is a queer Tamil community organiser who works across the intersections of law and self-determination for Tamil peoples and has also been organising mutual aid for essential resources in Sri Lanka. Whilst it's been incredible to see the resistance that's been coming out of this country that I call home, I do think we tend to gloss over the very, very important complexities that lie behind this this, this resistance movement that, we're, that we've been seeing for the last couple months, right? And what what you see in the discourse that's emerging in relation to this resistance movement isn't necessarily reflecting what's happening on the grounds either. And that stems from the fact that you have Western media outlets who have absolutely no idea what's happening in the country reporting incorrectly on what's happening back home, right? And you have diaspora who are delivering, rightfully delivering critique, but at the same time disconnected from what's again happening back home and you have individuals on the ground doing the everyday work who are facing the threat of like for for their lives who don't have the ability to get their voice out who aren't given the platform whose dissent is consistently policed and crushed and therefore you don't really have um a a coherent narrative being drawn about the economic crisis that is going to reflect the needs of of the people on the ground who need it the most. And that's where something like mutual aid, which is inherently a model that's rooted in in anarchy, if you really think about it, right? That's where that kind of model really comes into use and becomes really helpful because you're able to coordinate um, help that is inherently transnational, but at the same time, make sure it really gets to the people that need it the most. It's a it's a better model to make sure that you are doing work that is meaningful, that is reflective of what's on the ground, that is reflective of the everyday reality, and that is reaching socioeconomic classes and socioeconomic brackets that may not necessarily interact with these, these um, environments of discourse, such as the Western media or such as the diaspora.
So how did Sri Lanka get to this critical point? Here's Sharan speaking to the immediate events leading to the storming of the president's home. Basically a sharp increase in the cost of living. So so the Sri Lankan rupee was um, kind of pegged to the dollar for about, um, let's say, two to three years, I think from, from, from late 2019 or early 2020 until um, around April this year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, the government was desperately trying to defend the value of the rupee while paying off a lot of external debt. Um, and what ended up happening is that um, the country ran out of foreign exchange reserves, so they could no longer uh, defend the value of the currency and they had to let it float overnight. Um, and that instant devaluation had an immediate effect on people's everyday lives. So the cost of goods um, increased significantly, uh, the cost of fuel especially. So, you know, the cost of fuel translates into the cost of everything else. So when fuel prices go up, um, local food prices go up, um, transport prices go up, and that that affects uh, the poorest of the poor. It usually affects the poor in urban areas first because they have no access to, say, um, rural land to sort of grow their own food, uh, which, you know, you might see in rural areas in Sri Lanka. The urban sector in particular is very dependent on imports. So imported wheat, <clears throat> imported lentils, imported rice in some instances. Um, so it was basically a, a currency crisis, which translated into uh, a cost of living crisis, which triggered the protests. And then, of course, there were severe shortages as well of like fuel, of um, gas for cooking. Um, and I think all of that created a lot of frustration among different class groups, which led to an a somewhat spontaneous explosion of, uh, of protests. In many ways, this has been a long time coming. Sri Lanka has been recovering from some real deep regimes of colonialism and despite its independence, has never quite established itself as having sovereignty over its own resources. This is no accident and another way in which colonialism has a firm grasp on the country. Sri Lanka is still emerging from the legacy of colonialism, right? Um, in, in 1948, we uh, achieved independence or some form of independence from um, the British. But before that, um, Sri Lanka was a colony of um, the Portuguese first and then the Dutch and then, of course, the English. So uh, you have this very... Um, fairly brutal colonial history, actually, which is not talked about even even within Sri Lanka and like sort of liberal middle class circles. I would say a lot of Sri Lankans themselves are kind of ignorant of just how, um, you know, how pervasive the influence of colonial, colonialism still is in terms of the structure of the economy, uh, the diet, you know, even the language. Right. You know, basically starting with um, the British, at least the, the basic structure of the economy that Sri Lanka inherited after independence was an export-oriented um, cash crop plantation economy, right? So uh, very similar to what you see throughout the Caribbean and parts of Latin America, uh, and even certain states in India like Assam. So um, you know, basically what that means is the, the, uh, the British Raj um, appropriated the land of the peasantry, land which was traditionally used um, as like forest cover, uh, grazing uh, pastures for, for cattle, and um, you know paddy farming and this was transformed into the growing of cash crops so um, rubber tea uh, coffee coconut um, 
this is sort of the, the the pervasive crop that was that was grown. And at the time of independence, uh, not only did Sri Lanka have one of the lowest ratios of arable land per capita in all of Asia, it was it was even worse because that little arable land was used for cash crops. So Sri Lanka was very food insecure for a long time, and it it took until about the 70s to become uh, food sovereign. So that's the sort of uh, land side of it, right? So the, the way the use of land was changed during the colonial period. Um, then there's also, you know, what happens with a lot of plantation economies is that you have um, migration of labor and how that leaves a legacy that sort of transforms into ethnic conflict in the post-colonial periods, because you know, you have the traditional peasantry essentially removed from their land, and then you bring this um, essentially slave labor from uh, India to work in the plantations. And then you have this colonial public administration that is only open to, uh, you know, people that are able to speak English and that are Christian. Uh, and of course, in, in, in the Sri Lankan context, a lot of the English Christian schools were situated in the north and east. So then you had a um, an overrepresentation of uh, upper caste Tamil elites in the public sector, um, and then a large uh, landless Sinhalese population. So then, you know, when you add the decolonization process, um, and then when you add uh, a lot of economic problems, including you know unemployment, lack of industries, um, you get a pretty deadly cocktail, which um, in in the Sri Lankan case has exploded into these these periodic. Um, Parts of you know, ethnic violence and and, and pogroms. Um, so I think that's that's the basic like structure of of Sri Lanka, like the political economy. I think of a lot of things that um, you know that you might hear in the news and you might not be able to sort of process if you're just looking at Sri Lanka from the outside. You hear about like corruption, you hear about ethnic conflict, um, and all of that. But it's to me at least, it's it's this sort of basic. Uh, structure created by the colonial era and and the long and painful process of trying to revert that uh, structure, but like in a progressive way, not you know in a way where people end up eating each other. What's unfolding in Sri Lanka, the ongoing economic and humanitarian crisis, is also interwoven with a debilitating history of debt that many countries in the Global South are impacted by. Here's Sharon again with an insight into how Western financial institutions played a key role in the position Sri Lanka finds itself in. I would say it has been pretty pretty brutal and pretty violent. Um, as far back as 1952, I think the World Bank conducted its first report and study on, um, on Sri Lanka, and its, its recommendations were exactly the opposite of you know what any developmentalist would would tell a country to do. So at the time, Sri Lanka was trying to run a few basic industries. It was trying to uh, grow uh, cotton um, so that it would have the raw materials for uh, a fully fledged um, sort of textiles and apparel sector. Um, the World Bank pretty much dismissed all of this and said, you know, Sri Lanka, you should focus on agriculture. Basically, you should not focus on doing things that would, uh, you know, compete with England and the U.S. You know, from the beginning, you kind of have that um, dismissal of the, of the need to basically graduate towards industrialization. You know, when you when you do those things without a coherent plan or a social safety net, 
uh, or an overall idea of what direction you're going, you're just sort of releasing everything to market forces. It can be extremely destruct disruptive and extremely uh, destabilizing socially. So even even a lot of the ethnic violence that happened in Sri Lanka in in the 1970s and 80s, like the the infamous um, riots uh, pogroms, actually in 1983, Black July, um, very few uh, situate that in the context of the austerity that was happening, right? So um, basically in, in the 1980s, Sri Lanka was going through several IMF programs. Uh, there was withdrawal of a lot of subsidies on food, especially. There was withdrawal of, um, of uh, protections for uh, certain industries, uh, including the agricultural sector. Um, there was a floating of the exchange rate basically overnight, which led to massive inflation. So this was the kind of very unstable um, socioeconomic condition in which the ethnic violence gets exacerbated, basically. That instability and the proliferation of ethnic violence has a direct link to politics here in so-called Australia. Renika Inka Kumar unpacked the links between the two places and particularly how this impacts the already unjust treatment of refugees in offshore detentions here. What is the Australian government doing to the First Nations people? That is one thing. Um, the First Nations people are facing genocide like the Tamils are facing genocide. So I think the Australian wider community needs to realise that the very first thing is what is occurring in Australia and how the Australian government is also aiding um, genocidal governments to continue their acts of discrimination. Um, they're not different at all. Um, you know, we can see Anthony Albanese, you know, trying to take a photo within Nadesa Lingam's family. That is, you know, that's not correct at all. Um, but I think it's stories where we need to be able to showcase stories. So if we look at the Nadesa Lingam's as an example, they were able to have their story out because we had Priya take a video of what was occurring. What is the truth of guards holding her, um, ripping their families apart, um, put, being put in separate vans? And that is when we were able to slowly push that genocide occurred and is still occurring in Sri Lanka. Um, you know, whilst we still push for that, the Western media is very careful in using specific terminology. Um, so, and, you know, replacing genocide with civil war, or saying it's finished. Two thousand nine is finished. It's all it's all okay now. When it is when it is not, um, and I think they need to realize that Labor and Liberal are not different at all. They are both right in their own ways. So Claire O'Neill, Home Affairs Minister, went and met with the Sri Lankan war criminals. Not once did she go and meet with those in the north and east to discuss what is occurring. Um, she met with Shivendra Silva, Kumar. Gonaratna, who gave her a book of Muli Vaikal, which he was in power at the time as well, um, bombing and massacring um, Tamils. So I think um, the Australian, Australian wider public, sorry, needs to make these links um, clearly and needs to look into the history of the refugee policies as well, um, because both Labour and Liberal have played significant roles in um, trying to deter refugees from coming to Australia and keeping refugees detained in detention centres for more than 10 years. So with the refugee advocacy, you know, it's, it's always hard. It's never easy trying to advocate for refugees. Um, it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter what the climate is in Sri Lanka. We always get the false narrative that what is occurring in Sri Lanka is safe. 
And it's extremely hard now because people perceive that with the economic protests that, you know, um, okay, Gothabai is out, it's safe for you guys to go to Sri Lanka, um, which is not the case. Um, and like I said, like we want a political change. So the economic change is not going to help Tamils on the island. Um, and, you know, we're trying to push for permanent protection for all refugees, um, which is very crucial for all um, Tamils as they're, they're in fear every single day. Um, and like the Nadesa Lingams, there are families who are not just from the Tamil community, from all communities, Afghanistan, Bangladeshi. Um, so I think the refugee now um, advocacy is all communities are starting to, you know, help each other because I think there's like a slow um, but steady realisation that Labor's not going to do anything and they always do false promises when it comes to election time. And there's always a photo opportunity for Labour, so when they have that, they'll take it. So for those of us away from this homeland, where do our responsibilities lie? How do we begin to hold the complexities of story and defer energy and advocacy in ways that could enact real change? I think we need to be really mindful of whose voices are we centering in the resources and content and information that we're consuming um, first and foremost because like I like I said right you have this incredible discourse that's coming out of the diaspora that's critiquing and really shedding so much nuance onto what is happening in Sri Lanka right now and that's really important because the diaspora particularly the Tamil diaspora plays a very key role in the Sri Lankan economic crisis, but also just Sri Lanka's identity as a country in this world. And they've also played a really big role through their advocacy for how the world is responding to, for instance, the fleeing of the of their past president, Gautabaya Rajapaksa and his family, right? Um, but they don't necessarily speak for the individuals in Sri Lanka either. And I think it's really important as diaspora who are consuming these, in, these, these different sources of information to be aware of that and be mindful of that. Um, but I also think that it's super important to be aware of the fact that aside from the fact, aside from the voices that we're centering, these voices are inherently tainted by Tamil ethno-nationalism. And that's that, that that there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's just the reality of the Tamil diaspora and our own struggle as a as a community in Sri Lanka and how that's inherently interweaved with ethno-nationalism. But what kind of emerges out of listening to voices that prioritize Tamil ethno-nationalism or use a lens or critique that is Tamil ethno-nationalism is that anything that they critique about the economic crisis is going to only be contextualized around Sinhala Buddhist ethno-nationalism. And the problem with that is that the Sri Lankan state is rightfully so an ethno-nationalist state, a majoritarian, majoritarian state that has produced several problems, has marginalized and has genocided its marginalized, its, its community, its minority communities, right? But simultaneously, it's also a classist state. It's also a state that's enacted policies that have contributed to the economic disenfranchisement of minorities, but also individuals in the majority who fall under a lower socioeconomic class or lower socioeconomic bracket. And when you focus on diaspora voices that only center ethno-nationalism, you fail to realize how ethno-nationalism is inherently intertwined with classism and with economic 
economic disenfranchisement. And that is super important to remember, given that what's happening in Sri Lanka right now is an economic crisis, first and foremost, fundamentally, right? Um, I also think that the way the diaspora kind of sees solutions for what's happening back home needs to be questioned. And it, it stems from the fact that a lot, of, a lot of people in the diaspora call for international justice and international accountability mechanisms, right? So one of the biggest kind of demands that I've been, I've been seeing being made, um, particularly on social media, but also by diaspora human rights advocacy groups is that they want Gothabaya Rajapaksa to be arrested and tried in the ICC. And while this is, you know, it's important and it's, it's, super, it's super important that it happens, I think we need to, as the diaspora, be mindful of the fact that A, not only has Sri Lanka not signed the Rome Statute yet, so there's no way that Sri Lanka even has the jurisdiction to refer Gotabaya Rajapaksa to the ICC, but also the ICC itself has a long history of selective bias, particularly towards African countries. So you have this institution that is fundamentally flawed, that has a history of racism, and the law that this institution is practicing and is enacting also is rooted in histories of racism, Eurocentricity, and colonialism. So while it's important for the diaspora to make demands for international justice, it's also really important to be aware of what are the shortcomings of these systems that you're trying to use to help the people back home, and whether or not it really reflects once again, the needs and demands of the individuals who are facing the brunt of the economic crisis every single day back in Sri Lanka. So that tension is something that I think we need to be more aware of and we need to be more grounded in because as the diaspora, we are disconnected. We are away from like quite literally physically away from the country that is Sri Lanka, right? And so as much as we have connection to what is happening, as much as we may have relatives, as much as we may have access to culture and understanding of language, we don't quite literally know what's happening back home. And it's important to be aware of what are we proposing and whether or not that is in tandem with what's happening back home. Grounded in that tension and recognizing the disconnect we have in the diaspora can make way for productive gestures for social change. Here's Sharon. One thing I personally don't find uh, helpful is when you're in the diaspora, you have very little influence or control of domestic politics. So fixating on one on a certain political party or a certain political dynasty um, ends up, I feel, not being very helpful because there's not really much you can do. You know, at best, you might end up be like providing fodder for sort of a, a Western regime change operation because, okay, because you're only focusing on like one you know, one aspect of the problem and not like the structural problem. So then what can you, can, what can you actually influence in a positive way, you know, sitting in the diaspora, probably in countries that are like the heart of empire, I feel like in the US or in Canada or in um, Australia. So certainly uh, talking about that, uh, talking about, I think, debt forgiveness, I think that's something that can be pushed for, uh, even if nothing comes out of it, it'll just, you know, bring to the fore the question of like unjust debt and um, debt that's been a result of the sort of colonial economic paradigm that's been imposed on these countries. Outside of this, what could a systematic change and people-centred, accountable vision of Sri Lanka look like? There's 
obviously no linear or one answer to this, but Sharan, Naroshni and Renika all had really fervent and in- insightful responses to this. I guess everyone would have their particular reform or their particular change that they think would be a band-aid to like fixing things in Sri Lanka, right? So you'd get the so the anti-corruption libertarian bro who think like, you know, if we just have checks and balances and we don't have corruption, everything will be okay. Um, you might have very ultra-nationalistic people who'd be like, you know, oh, if, if the Sinhalese were on top, everything would be okay. Uh, the other side of that, you might have people say, oh, you know, if Tamils had a separate state, everything would be okay. Certainly, I think we need to, like, as Sri Lankans, everyone sort of needs together to have a vision for basically a productive society where everyone has um, their basic necessities met and we can at the very least uh, provide conditions for like stability and for improving quality of life which would I think function as a basis on which we can do the other things right so I think at the the very minimum we need employment we need um, stable and rising incomes so that we can have a sort of safe and not so polarized environment in which we can talk about, say, um, you know, um, you know, ethnic issues and and how that should be dealt with uh, in terms of and and talk about uh, political reform, you know, and dealing with corruption. Because I think as as long as the the economic situation is is so tense and so polarized and so unequal, um, you you constantly have this situation where um, you can't carry these conversations forward without some sort of jingoist co-opting them and trying to scapegoat someone. A basic, I think, understanding and a consensus of breaking away from the colonial structure of the Sri Lankan economy and trying to build a kind of a, like a modern industrialized society. And I think that in itself would serve as a progressive foundation on which all of these other things can be built. Because even if we, like I always say, if you look at um, some of the most culturally and socially liberal or progressive countries in the world, they've done that on the basis of, well, of, imper- of imperialism, but putting that to a side, they've also done that on the basis of this kind of economic system that they have. An acknowledgement of genocide, and it needs to be also the international states held accountable, um, and that being the Australian government, the US, Israel, India, a whole bunch of international states need to be held accountable for aiding the Sri Lankan government, especially in 2009. It's quite difficult because I'm, I'm, I think as I was younger, the, the intergenerational trauma, I didn't feel it. But as I'm getting older, it's quite um, deep and quite painful when I go to these events. Even when I go to rallies, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement with the singular youth, not just saying we understand, we feel sorry. I want to hear, we know that there was a genocide and we know that there is an ongoing genocide. I want to hear those words. It's very crucial. And I think that's the ongoing fight that my generation has to carry. And I hope that the younger generation does not have to feel this trauma. Like when I see younger kids at the rally, it does make me feel, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're carrying on the, you know, the fight for justice. But at the same time, when I look at them, I'm thinking, please do not feel what I'm feeling or do not feel what my mother is feeling or worse. I want it to stop and I want there to be an acknowledgement. I want there to be justice for those who survived Muli Vaiko and the courage that they had. 
we should be able to have a bit of that courage. It is in our blood. I, I think there's no one answer to that. I, I think, and that's that's what a, a, a vision for systematic change should be, right? That there isn't one answer to that. But I also think fundamentally that answer, any answer to systematic change in Sri Lanka cannot and will not lie in the creation or maintenance or disrupt, creation and maintenance of a nation state, right? And I think that's that's a controversial point to make given that Sri Lanka has a long history of separatist movements and the creation of multiple nation states. So I think we need to be aware of how can we imagine systemic change beyond ethno-nationalism, first and foremost, but also secondly, how can we center voices which remain marginalized, not just in Sri Lanka, but within the very communities in Sri Lanka? So that requires us to really draw upon an intersectional group of identities that center not just your ethnicity, but also your gender, your class, your, your, your sexuality, your, geo, your geographical location, your religion. Um, there's so much that's happening in Sri Lanka and there are so many groups of individuals that are struggling in Sri Lanka right now. And it's really important to understand how does the economic crisis affect each and every single one of them differently? And how do we center all of those different struggles in this systematic movement of change that we want going forward? In weaving together these voices, it's clear how entangled the many lineages, histories and agendas are. There is a long way off for Sri Lanka to experience recovery. Basic resources are needed to start envisioning what positive and equitable transformation could look like and hopefully visions that honour the many and varied needs of groups that have experienced the failures and violence of past regimes. In speaking through these events, it's not lost on me how it can be easy to get swept up in the spectacle or discourse of political strife and lose tether to the real people who have been deeply affected by crisis and upheaval. The last voice you'll hear is Tamil activist, recovering engineer and artist Dakshaini. Their work explores the connection between data, borders and genocide shared during the month of Black July, a time when many Tamil communities meditate on profound loss and violence and how that violence has echoed into Australia's abusive border policing regime. Their work is a reminder that while Sri Lanka's crisis can feel like a faraway narrative, its impacts can be felt across countries, including where we are now. My name is a spell. It can't be held in the mouths of oppressors. Reminiscent of territories of bodies invaded. The database collects my name but cannot understand it. Yet the database decides where I will go in this life. Life is a series of borders built and policed by those without access to themselves. But if we can be sorted, ordered, owned by walls, by data, then so can they. Eventually, borders creep. But our inner worlds cannot be stolen like land. Land is a source of our innate ancestral power 
The soil and water that nourished my infant body lives on in me, even here at the borderlands where my Tamil is broken and our people indefinitely imprisoned. To be imprisoned for seeking safety, for fleeing a genocide, for escaping the erasure of language, culture, for leaving a broken country, for resisting the regime that broke this country, for being born in a country broken by empire, for being ripped from our homelands, for sacrificing ever being home again, whole again, is to be imprisoned for existing. Existing is not possible without building worlds made up of music, sound and stillness in frequencies their ears can't hear. Ourselves are fluid, complex, interwoven with other and at the same time non-existent. Not to be contained in ones and zeros, the seeds of liberatory systems. Systems we live in could bend and break under the pressure of a presence, of a stillness so deep it feels close to death. Perhaps even colonizers could access their own stillness, could speak our names if only they stayed quiet long enough to hear it.